Men with their limited and often mistaken knowledge have no right to censor God's distribution of his grace. It would be as unreasonable to charge him with injustice for not having made all of his creatures angels and for not having preserved them in holiness as he did the angels in heaven and as he had power to do as to charge him with injustice for not having redeemed all mankind. It is as hard for us to understand why he allows any to perish eternally as for us to understand why he saves some and not others. He plainly does not prevent the perdition of those whom, beyond doubt, he has the power to save. And if those who admit God's providence say that he has wise reasons for permitting so many of our race to perish, those who advocate his sovereignty can say that he has wise reasons for saving some and not others. It might as reasonably be argued that since God punishes some, he should punish all, but no one goes to that extreme. It may be admitted that from our human viewpoint it would seem more plausible and more consistent with the character of God that sin and misery should never have been allowed to enter the universe, or if, when they had entered, provision had been made for their ultimate elimination from the system, so that all rational creatures could be perfectly holy and happy for eternity. There would be no end to such plans if every person were at liberty to construct a plan of divine operations in accordance with his own views as to what would be wisest and best. We are, however, shut up to the facts as they are found in the Bible, in the providential workings about us, and in our own religious experiences, and we find that only the Calvinistic system is satisfied by these. 4. God's partiality is partly explained by the fact that he is sovereign and that his gifts are of grace. It cannot be said that God acts unjustly towards those who are not included in this plan of salvation. People who make this objection neglect to take into consideration the fact that God is dealing not merely with creatures, but with sinful creatures who have forfeited every claim upon his mercy. Augustine well said, Damnation is rendered to the wicked as a matter of debt, justice, and desert, whereas the grace given to those who are delivered is free and unmerited, so that the condemned sinner cannot allege that he is unworthy of his punishment, nor the saint vaunt or boast as if he were worthy of his reward. Thus, in the whole course of this procedure, there is no respect of persons. They who are condemned and they who are set at liberty constituted originally one in the same lump, equally infected with sin and liable to vengeance. Hence the justified may learn from the condemnation of the rest that that would have been their own punishment had not God's grace stepped in to the rescue. And to the same effect Calvin says, The Lord therefore may give grace to whom he will, because he is merciful, and yet not give it to all, because he is a just judge, may manifest his free grace by giving to some what they never deserve, while by not giving to all, he declares the demerit of all. Partiality in the sense that objectors commonly use the word is impossible in the sphere of grace. It can exist only in the sphere of justice, where the persons concerned have their claims and rights. We may give to one beggar and not to another, for we do not owe anything to either. The parable of the talents was spoken by our Lord to illustrate the doctrine of the divine sovereignty in the bestowment of unmerited gifts, and the regeneration of the soul is one of the greatest of these gifts. 
The central teaching in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is that God is sovereign in the distribution of his gifts. To the saved and the unsaved alike he can say, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Or is thine eye evil because I am good? Matthew 20 verses 13 through 15 It was said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul adds, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that hath mercy. So then he hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. Romans 9 verses 15 through 18 He will extend mercy to some and inflict justice on others, and will be glorified by all. Just as a man may give alms to some and not others, so God may give his grace, which is heavenly alms, to whom he pleases. Grace from its own nature must be free, and the very inequality of its distribution demonstrates that it is truly gratuitous. If anyone could justly demand it, it would cease to be grace and would become of debt. If God is robbed of his sovereignty in this respect, salvation then becomes a matter of debt to every person. If ten men each owe a certain creditor $1,000, and he for reasons of his own forgives the debts of seven, but collects from the other three, the latter have no grounds for complaint. If three criminals are sentenced to be hanged for having committed murder, and then two of them are pardoned, perhaps it is found that they have rendered distinguished service to their country in time of war. Does that render the execution of the third unjust? Plainly no, for in his case there is no intervening cause as to why he should not suffer for his crime. And if an earthly prince may justly do this, shall not the sovereign lord of all be allowed to act in the same manner toward his rebellious subjects? When all mankind might have been punished, how can God be charged with injustice if he punishes only a part of them? in that, no doubt, a comparatively small part. Warburton gives a very fitting illustration here. He supposes a case in which a lady goes to an orphan's home, and from the hundreds of children there chooses one, adopts it as her own child, and leaves the rest. She might have chosen others. She had the means to keep others, but she chose one. Will you tell me that woman is unjust? Will you tell me that she is unfair or unrighteous because in the exercise of her undisputed right and privilege she chose out that one child to enjoy the comforts of her home and become the heir of her possessions and left all the others possibly to perish in want or to sink into wretched condition of gutter children? Have you ever heard any lay the charge of injustice or unrighteousness against the one who has done such an action? Do men not rather hold such an action up to praise? Do they not speak in the highest terms of the love, the pity, and the compassion of such a person? Now why do they do this? Why do they not condemn the taking of the one and the leaving of the rest? Why do they not complain that it was unjust for this particular one to be chosen, and not another, or not all? The reason is this, because men know as we also know, that all those children were in exactly the same plight and that not one of them had a single claim or the least vestige of a claim upon the person whose will and pleasure it was to adopt one of them as her own. Do you or can you see anything different in this act of God's from that of my neighbor's?
The children in that foundling home had no claim upon my neighbor. Neither had fallen men any claim upon God. In God's choice, therefore, just as it was free and unmerited, so was it also righteous and just. In this free and unmerited fore-choice of God, in view of man's self-procured ruin, is all that is meant by the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. Since the merit of Christ's sacrifice were of finite value, the plan which usually first suggests itself to our hearts is that God should have saved all. But he chose to make an eternal exhibition of his justice as well as his mercy. If every person had been saved, it would not have been seen what sin deserved. If no person had been saved, it would not have been seen what grace could bestow. Furthermore, the fact that salvation was provided not for all, but for only for some, makes it all the more appreciated by those to whom it is given. All in all, it was best for the universe at large that some should be permitted to have their own way and thus show what a dreadful thing is opposition to God. But someone may ask, what about this unregenerate man, this one of the non-elect who is left in sin, subject to eternal punishment, unable even to see the kingdom of God? We reply, go back to the doctrine of original sin, in Adam, who was appointed the federal head and representative of all his descendants, the race had a most fair and favorable opportunity to gain salvation, but lost it. The justification for the election of some and the passing by of others is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Doubtless there are the best of reasons for the choosing of some and the passing by of others, but these have not been made known to us. We do know, however, that none of the lost suffer any unmerited punishment. In this world they enjoy the good things of providence in common with the children of God, and very often in a much higher degree. Conscience and experience testify that we are members of an apostate race, and every man who comes short of eternal life knows that the responsibility rests primarily upon himself. Furthermore, if all men are in their present lost and ruined condition by the operation of just principles on the part of God, and who will say that they are not, they must justly be left to deserved punishment. It is absurd to say that they are justly exposed to eternal misery, and yet that it would be unjust for them to suffer, for that is the same as saying that the execution of a just penalty is unjust. It may also be added that man in his fallen state has no desire for salvation, and that from this corrupt mass God hath mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. This is the uniform teaching of Scripture. He who denies this denies Christianity and calls in question God's government of the world. As a matter of fact, all of us are partial. We treat the members of our own family or our friends with great partiality, although at the time we may know that they are no more deserving, or perhaps even less deserving, than are many others with whom we are associated. It does not follow that if we grant favors to some, we must grant the same or equal favors to all. Yet the Arminian absolutely prescribes it as a rule to the Most High that he ought to extend his bounty to all equally, as from a public treasury. Should an earthly friend, says Top Lady, make me a present of ten thousand pounds, would it not be unreasonable, 
ungrateful and presumptuous in me to refuse the gift and revile the giver only because it might not be his pleasure to confer the same favor on my next door neighbor? Hence, then, to the objection that the doctrine of predestination represents God as partial, we answer, it certainly does, but we insist that it does not represent him as unjustly partial. Chapter 20, page 274 that it is unfavorable to good morality. 1. The means as well as the ends are foreordained. 2. Love and gratitude to God for what he has done for us is the strongest possible and only permanent basis for morality. 3. The practical fruits of Calvinism in history are its best vindication. 1. The means as well as the ends are foreordained. The objection is sometimes made that this system encourages men to be careless and indifferent about their moral conduct and their growth in grace on the ground that their eternal welfare has already been secured. This objection is primarily directed against the doctrines of election and the perseverance of the saints. This objection, however, like the one to the effect that this system discourages all motives to exertion, is completely answered by the great principle which we hold and teach, namely, that the means as well as the ends are foreordained. God's decree that the earth should be fruitful did not exclude, but included, the sunlight, the showers, the tillage of the husbandman, etc. If God has foreordained a man to have a crop of corn, he has also foreordained him to plow and plant and cultivate, and to do all other necessary things to secure the crop. Just as the purpose to build includes the hewing of stone, the squaring of timbers, and the preparation of all other materials which enter into the structure, and as the declaration of war implies arms, ammunition, ships, and all other necessary equipment, so the election of some to eternal enjoyment of heaven includes their election to holiness here. It is not the individual as such, but the individual as holy and virtuous that is predestinated to eternal life. In the plainest of language, Paul taught that the very purpose of election is that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, Ephesians 1, verse 4, that we are foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8:29, and that God chose you from the beginning unto salvation and sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, 2 Thessalonians 2:13. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed, Acts 13, verse 48. The predestinated, called, justified, glorified ones are the same, Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Therefore, the purpose of God according to election must stand, Romans 9, 11. The belief of Calvinists concerning this subject is well expressed in the Westminster Confession, where we read, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Chapter 3, Section 6 God decreed that fifteen years should be added to Hezekiah's life, this made him neither careless of his health nor negligent of his food, 
He said not, Though I run into the fire, or into the water, or drink poison, I shall nevertheless live so long. But natural providence, in the due use of means, co-wrought so as to bring him on to that period of time preordained by him. Since all events are more or less intimately connected, and since God works by means, if he did not determine the means as well as the events, the certainty as to the events themselves would be destroyed. In the redemption of man, he determined not only the work of Christ and of the Holy Spirit, but also the faith, repentance, and perseverance of all his people. When the same doctrine was preached by Paul on another occasion, and the same objection was brought against it, namely that he made the law of none effect through faith, or in other words, that since we are saved through faith we do not need to keep the moral law, his emphatic reply was, God forbid, nay, we establish the law, Romans 3, verse 31. There is then an invariable connection established between eternal salvation as an end and faith and holiness as a means leading to that end. The ideal Christian, of course, would commit no sin at all. Though certainly saved, he is saved for good works and is commanded to give no occasion of stumbling in anything, that our ministration be not blamed. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3 The scriptures know of no perseverance which is not a perseverance in holiness, and they give no encouragement to any sense of security which is not connected with the present and ever-increasing holiness. Virtue and piety, therefore, are the effect and not the cause of election, for which no cause is to be assigned except God's sovereign good pleasure. It is true that some become much more advanced in holiness here and continue in that state over a much longer period of time than do others. Yet it is vain for any who do not partake in some degree of holiness in this world to hope to enjoy happiness in the next. All those whom God has designed to render perfectly happy in eternity, he has designed to make in part happy in this world. And as holiness is essential to the happiness of an intelligent creature, so there is begun in them in this world that holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. 2. Love and gratitude to God for what he has done for us is the strongest possible and only permanent basis for morality. Those who make the objection that we are now considering assume that believers, those who through the almighty power of God have been brought from death to life, from sin to holiness, who have partially beheld the love and glory of God as it is revealed in Christ, are still incapable of being influenced by any motives except those which arise from a selfish and exclusive regard to their own safety and happiness. And as Cunningham says, they do virtually make a confession. First, that any outward decency which their conduct may at present exhibit is to be traced solely to the fear of punishment. And secondly, that if they were only secured against punishment, they would find much greater satisfaction in serving the devil than in serving God. And that they would never think of showing any gratitude to him who had conferred the safety and deliverance on which they place so much reliance. The contrast between the Calvinistic and Arminian basis for morality is clearly stated in the following section from McFurtage. The two greatest springs by which men are moved are, on the one hand, conviction and idea, 
on the other emotion and sentiment. As these control, so the moral character will be shaped. The man who is ruled by convictions and ideas is the man of stability. He cannot be changed until his conscience is changed. The man who is ruled by emotion and sentiment is the man of instability. Now the appeal of Arminianism is chiefly to the sentiments. Regarding man as having the absolute free moral control of himself and as able at any moment to determine his own eternal state, it naturally applies itself to the arousing of his emotions. Whatever can lawfully awaken the feelings is considered expedient. Accordingly, the senses above all things must be addressed and affected. Hence the Arminian is, religiously, a man of feeling, of sentiment, and consequently disposed to all those things which interest the eye and please the ear. His morality, therefore, is depending chiefly upon the emotions, is in the nature of the case liable to frequent fluctuations, rising or falling with the wave of sensation upon which it rides. Calvinism, on the other hand, is a system which appeals to idea rather than to sentiment, to conscience rather than emotion. In its views, all things are under a great and perfect system of divine laws which operate in defiance of feeling and which must be obeyed at the peril of the soul. Its thought is not sentiment, but conviction. It makes the voice of God speaking in the soul a guide in all conduct. It seeks rather to convince men than to fill them with a transient sensation. Thus, a deep sense of duty is the greatest thing in the moral life of the Calvinist. His first and last question is, Is it right? Of that he must first be convinced. Hence, with him, conscience has the first place in all practical questions. In the Calvinist's conception, God has marked out the way in which man is to walk, a way which he will not change, and man is required to walk in it joyously or sorrowfully, with as much or as little sentiment as he pleases. Hence the Calvinist is not religiously a man of demonstrations, but rather a man of thoughtfulness, so that his morality, whatever it may be otherwise, is characterized by stability and strength, which may sometimes lapse into stubbornness and harshness. Our love to God would at best be only lukewarm if we believed that his love and favor toward us depended only on our good behavior. His love toward us is as an immense sun which shone without beginning and which will shine without end, while ours towards him is at its best as only a little flame. Hence the assurance that the objects of God's love shall never be permitted to fall away. Love which is founded on self-interest is commonly recognized as not being moral in the highest sense, yet Calvinism is the only system of faith which presents a purely unselfish motive, namely the consciousness that it is alone the free grace and unmerited love of God, to the exclusion of all human merit, that saves men. When the Christian remembers that he was saved only through the suffering and death of Christ, his substitute, love and gratitude overflow his heart, and like Paul he feels that the least he can offer Christ in return is his whole life in loving service. Seeing himself saved by grace alone, he learns to love God for his own sake, and finds it the joy of his life to serve him with the whole heart. 
Obedience becomes not only the obligatory, but the preferable good. The mold of which actuates the saints on earth is the same principle which not so intense as that which actuates the saints in glory, whose constant delight is to perform the noblest actions and service, namely that of praising God and punctually performing His will without interruptions or defeats. As they have always a ravishing sense of His goodness to them, so they exercise their perfectly pure minds in descriptions of praise and glory to Him for delivering them from deserved ruin and placing them in the blissful mansions where they find themselves possessed of ease, delight, complacency, and glory wholly unmerited. Pure love and gratitude to God and not selfish fear is the very fuel of acceptable obedience, and these are the elements from which alone anything like high and pure morality will ever proceed. Jesus had no fear that a sense of eternal security would lead to licentiousness in his disciples, for he said to them, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The elect, therefore, have the utmost reason to love and glorify God, which any beings can have, and it is a sheer calumny to represent the doctrine of predestination as tending to licentiousness and as unfavorable to good morality. 3. The practical fruits of Calvinism in history are its best vindication. Calvinism answers the charge that it is unfavorable to good morality, not merely by opposing reason against reason, but by putting facts of worldwide reputation over against these fictitious claims. It simply asks, what revival fruits can other systems oppose if we point to the achievements of the Protestant leaders of the Reformation period and to the high moral earnestness of the Puritans? Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and their immediate helpers were all thoroughgoing Calvinists, and the greatest spiritual revival of all time was brought about under their influence. Those in England who held this system of faith were so very strict regarding purity of doctrine, purity of worship, and purity of daily life, that by their very enemies, who thus were their best witnesses, they were called Puritans. The Puritans in England, the Covenanters in Scotland, and the Huguenots in France were men of the same religious faith and of like moral qualities. That the system of Calvin should have developed precisely the same kind of men in each of these different countries is a proof of its power in the formation of character. Concerning the Puritans in this country, McFetridge says, Almost all the people in the American colonies, they, the Puritans, Calvinists of New England, stood morally without peers. They were the men and the women of conscience, of sterling convictions. They were not, indeed, greatly given to sentimentalism. With mere spectacular observations in religion, they had no sympathy. Life to them was an experience too noble and earnest and solemn to be frittered away in pious ejaculations and emotional rhapsodies. They believed with all their soul in a just God, a heaven and a hell. They felt in the innermost core of their hearts that life was short and its responsibilities great. Hence their religion was their life. All their thoughts and relations were endued with it. 
Not only men, but beasts also were made to feel its favorable influences. Cruelty to animals was a civil offense. In this respect, they were two centuries in advance of the bulk of mankind. They were industrious, frugal, and enterprising, and consequently affluence followed in their path and descended to their children and children's children. Drunkenness, profanity, and beggary were things little known to them. They needed neither lock nor burglar proof to secure their honestly gotten possessions. The simple wooden bolt was enough to protect them and their wealth where honesty was the rule of life. As a result of such a life they were healthy and vigorous. They lived long and happy, reared large and devoted families, and descended to the grave like as a shock of corn cometh in his season, in peace with God and their fellow men, rejoicing in the hope of a blessed resurrection. It is further to be remembered as a diadem upon the brow of Calvinistic morality that in all the history of the Puritans there is said to have been not one case of divorce. What a crying need there is for some such influence today. Lawlessness in general was scarcely, if ever, more unknown than among the Puritans. If then Calvinism was actually unfavorable to morality as charged, it would indeed be a strange coincidence that where there has been the most of Calvinism, there has been the least of crime. This is the problem, says Froude. Grapes do not grow on bramble bushes. Illustrious natures do not form themselves upon narrow and cruel theories. Spiritual life is full of apparent paradoxes. The practical effect of a belief is the real test of its soundness. Where we find heroic life appearing as the uniform fruit of a particular opinion, it is childish to argue in the face of fact that the result ought to have been different. There is no system, says Henry Ward Beecher, which equals Calvinism in intensifying, to the last degree, ideas of moral excellence and purity of character. There never was a system since the world stood which puts upon man such motives to holiness, or which builds batteries which sweep the whole ground of sin with such horrible artillery. They tell us that Calvinism plies men with hammer and with chisel. It does, and the result is monumental marble. Other systems leave men soft and dirty. Calvinism makes them of white marble to endure forever. Instead of being a system which leads to immorality and despair, it has worked out exactly the opposite way in everyday life. No other system has so fired people with ideals of religious and civil freedom nor led to such high ideals of morality and endeavor in all phases of human life. Wherever the Reformed faith has gone, it has made the country to blossom like the rose, even though it was a poor country like Holland or Scotland or New England. This has been admitted by Malcory and many others, and is a very comforting thought. Chapter 21 that it precludes a sincere offer of the gospel to the non-elect. 1. The same objection applies against God's foreknowledge. 2. The offer is sincerely made. 1. The same objection applies against God's foreknowledge. 
although the gospel is offered to many who will not, and who for subjective reasons cannot accept it, it is nevertheless sincerely offered to all. The objections so strenuously urged on some occasions by Arminians to the effect that if the doctrine of predestination is true, the gospel cannot be sincerely offered to the non-elect, should be sufficiently answered by the fact that it bears with equal force against the doctrine of God's foreknowledge. We might ask, how can the offer of salvation be sincerely made to those who God foreknows will despise and reject it, especially when their guilt and condemnation will only be increased by their refusal? Arminians admit that God knows beforehand who will accept and who will reject the message, yet they know themselves to be under a divine command to preach to all men, and they do not feel that they act insincerely in doing so. The difficulty, however, in both cases is purely subjective and is due to our limited knowledge and our inability to comprehend the ways of God which are past finding out. We do know that the judge of all the earth will do right and we trust him even though our feeble reason cannot always follow his ways. We know definitely that abundant provision has been made for all who will come and that everyone who sincerely accepts will be saved. From Christ's own lips we have a parable which illustrates the love of God for his children. The father saw the returning prodigal when he was still a great way off, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. In the welcome given to this prodigal, God is willing to give to any prodigal. 2. The offer is sincerely made. God commanded Moses to gather together the elders of Israel to go to Pharaoh and demand that they be allowed to go three days' journey into the wilderness to hold a feast and offer sacrifices. Yet in the very next verse God himself says, I know that the king of Egypt will not give you leave to go, no, not by a mighty hand. Exodus 3, verse 18 and 19. If it is not inconsistent with God's sincerity for him to command all men to love him or to be perfect, Luke 10.27 and Matthew 5.48, it is not inconsistent with his sincerity for him to command them to repent and believe the gospel. A man may be altogether sincere in giving an invitation which he knows will be refused. A father who knows that his boys are going to do wrong feels constrained to tell them what is right. His warnings and pleadings are sincere. The trouble is in the boys. Will anyone contend that God cannot sincerely offer salvation to a free moral agent unless, in addition to the invitation, he exerts a special influence which will induce the person to accept it? After a civil war in a country, it often happens that the victorious general offers free pardon to all those in the opposing army, provided they will lay down their arms go home and live peaceable lives, although he knows that through pride and malice many will refuse. He makes the offer in good faith, even though for wise reasons he determines not to constrain their assent, supposing him possessed of such power. We may imagine the case of a ship with many passengers on board sinking some distance out from shore. A man hires a boat from a nearby port and goes to rescue his family. Incidentally, it happens that the boat which he takes is large enough to carry all the passengers, 
so he invites all those on the sinking vessel to come on board, although he knows that many of them, either through lack of appreciation of their danger or because of personal spite toward him, or for other reasons, will not accept. Yet does that make his offer any less sincere? If a man's family were with others held in captivity, and from love of them, and with the purpose of their redemption, a ransom should be offered sufficient for the delivery of the whole body of captives, it is plain that the offer of deliverance might be extended to all on the ground of that ransom, although specially intended only for a part of their number. Or a man may make a feast for his own friends, and the provisions be so abundant that he may throw open his doors to all who are willing to come. This is precisely what God, according to the Calvinistic doctrine, has actually done. Out of special love to his people and with the design of securing their salvation, he has sent his Son to do what justifies the offer of salvation to all who choose to accept it. When the gospel is presented to mankind in general, nothing but a sinful willingness on the part of some prevents their accepting and enjoying it. No stumbling block is put in their way. All that the call contains is true. It is adapted to the conditions of all men and freely offered if they will repent and believe. No outside influence constrains them to reject it. The elect accept, the non-elect may accept if they will, and nothing but their own nature determines them to do otherwise. According to the Calvinistic scheme, says Dr. Hodge, the non-elect have all the advantages and opportunities of securing their salvation that, according to any other scheme, are granted to mankind indiscriminately. Calvinism teaches that a plan of salvation adapted to all men and adequate for the salvation of all is freely offered to the acceptance of all, although in the secret purpose of God he intended that it should have precisely the effect which in experience it is found to have. He designed in its adoption to save his own people, but consistently offers its benefits to all who are willing to receive them. More than this, no anti-Calvinist can demand. Arminians object that God could not offer the gospel to those who in his secret counsel were not designed to accept it, yet we find the scriptures declaring that he does this very thing. His commands to Pharaoh have already been referred to. Isaiah was commissioned to preach to the Jews, and in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we find that he extended a gracious offer to pardon and cleansing. But in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, immediately following his glorious vision and official appointment, he is informed that this preaching is destined to harden his countrymen to their almost universal destruction. Ezekiel was sent to speak to the house of Israel, but was told beforehand that they would not hear. Ezekiel 3, verses 4 through 11. Matthew 23, verses 33 through 37 presents the same teaching. In these passages, God declares that he does the very thing which Armenians says he must not do. Hence, the objection now under consideration has arisen not because of any Calvinistic misstatement of the divine plan, but through erroneous assumptions made by Arminians themselves. The decree of election is a secret decree. 
and since no revelation has been given to the preacher as to which ones among his hearers are elect and which ones are non-elect, it is not possible for him to present the gospel to the elect only. It is his duty to look with hope on all those to whom he is preaching, and to pray for them that they may each be among the elect. In order to offer the message to the elect, he must offer it to all, and the scripture command is plain to the effect that it should be offered to all. Even the elect must hear before they can believe and accept. Romans 10 verses 13 through 17. The attentive reader, however, will perceive that the invitations are not, in the strict sense, general, but that they are addressed to the weary, the thirsty, the hungry, the willing, those who labor and are heavy laden, and not to those who are unconscious of any need and unwilling to be reformed. While the message is preached to all, it is God who chooses among the hearers those to whom he is speaking, and he makes this selection known to them through the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. The elect thus receive the message as the promise of salvation, but the non-elect it appears only as foolishness, or if their conscience is aroused as a judgment to condemnation. As a rule, the non-elect are not concerned about salvation, do not end the elect of their hope of salvation, but rather laugh and scorn at them. And since the secret as to which ones in the audience belong to the elect is hidden from the preacher, usually he does not know who got the message to salvation and who got it to judgment. Among the elect themselves there are so many weaknesses, and on the other hand, the evil one is so able to appear as an angel of light and to make such an outward show of good deeds and words that the preacher usually cannot be sure of the outcome. The effect of the preaching is not in the preacher's hands, but in God's hands, and it often happens that the sermons which seemed unsuccessful were strengthened and made effective by the Holy Spirit. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.